Like all of you, I'm on this journey. Only mine started 24 years, 12 weeks, five days, two hours, 36 minutes, and 14, 15, 16 seconds ago. This journey was not of my own choosing. It was set in motion by God himself long before my days came into being. And it's always been his plan to accomplish the unimaginable with me. 27, 28, 29. I've come so far, too far to turn back now. So no matter how hard this journey becomes, I will stay this course. I will not flinch, I will not blink, and I will not cower. There is no room for fear on this journey because I know my God is with me. And he's bigger than anything this world can throw my way. Circumstances and setbacks will not dictate this course. 42, 43, 44. Instead, I'm reaching out. I'm reaching up for all that my God has for me. 56, 57, 58, 59, 60. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into a series today uh, called Hard Times. Now, here's, here's the deal. This makes a ton of sense given the present crisis that you and I are in. I mean, we're, we're all living through some pretty hard times. As a matter of fact, if the economists are right, many of us who are alive have never seen a recession like the recession that you and I are going through. But here's what I need to say to you right now. If, if you came here today asking me where the best place to invest in the stock market is? You haven't looked at my 401k recently, okay? I, I, I'm pretty sure that where I've landed right now is I think maybe I'm close to if you took all the money I've ever invested, I may be somewhere at, at even now. If you, if you want to ask me where the best interest rates are and, when, and what to do with your home mortgage, I think my home right now is probably worth about two-thirds of what I owe on it. Okay. So you're not going to get that advice in this room. But, but I think there's a bigger question that you and I need to navigate and need to land in this moment. Because here's, here's the deal. Even if I could advise you today and say, look, 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 if you would just buy Pepsi-Cola stock, or, or if I could say to you, hey, let me tell you about another lending agency and you can refi, and you realize the next time a crisis came in your life, it's not going to look like this crisis. It's going to be different. It's going to be a loved one who's sick. It's going to be a friend who betrays. It's going to be different. And if all I do is tell you where easy times are now, the same fear that you and I are experiencing, the same confusion, the same struggle that's going on in our hearts will be there all over again the next time when the doctor says cancer. And the bigger question to ask right now is, no, 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 no. How do you navigate hard times? What do you do? What does a child of God do in that moment when life seems to be falling apart that's different? that's unique from a person who does not have that relationship, that connection with God. How do you and I live hard times differently than those who don't know our Jesus? Now, let me see if I can help. 
Most of you know that years ago I used to be a youth pastor. It's hard to admit I'm recovering from it, but yes, I used to be a youth pastor. Uh, all pastors who need work were once a youth pastor. So I'm taking a group of high school kids up to snow ski up at sunrise. So we took about 100 plus kids in a bus and we, we, we're skiing uh, the mountain up there. And about noontime, I make it down to kind of mid-level on the mountain only to see two of our girls, Lori and Debbie, have made it to the midway point on the mountain. Now, this was interesting because they were absolute quintessential snow bunnies. Now, now you know what a snow bunny is, right? That's the little gal who goes out, and before she goes skiing her first time, buys all the fancy clothes. So she looks amazing, but can't ski a lick. And they had spent the entire morning on Bunny Hill, and now in a moment of courage had decided to go up the hill, and the plan was to ski greens down. Now, if you know anything about skiing, greens are the lowest grade. They're the easiest way down the mountain. The problem was this. They got off the lift. They took a left turn, and now they're standing with absolute terror in their eyes as they realize the only hills they have in front of them are blues and blacks. And just at that moment, I happened to ski up, and they, they turned to me, and, and with tears running down their eyes, they go, Lynn, 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 please, please, can you tell us where a green is from here? Now, I had uh, several options at that moment. I could tell them where a green was, or I could push them off the, no, I could, uh, <laughs> I could offer to help them learn how to ski a blue. You realize those are two very different answers. Because if I send them to the green, I help them, in other words, you ready? I help them find the smoother hill, the calmer waters, so to speak. The next time they take the lift and find themselves facing blues, the same terror, the same confusion, the same absolute panic will sit into their hearts. Or I can teach them how to get down a blue. So I made the offer. I said, hey, look, guys. Uh, Green is actually just over to the right-hand side around those trees. You'll find a green, take you all the way to the bottom if that's what you want to do. But could I offer to teach you how to ski a blue? Lori looked at me and said, you're crazy. <laughs> Headed to the green. Debbie stayed. Debbie in that moment said, teach me, teach me, teach me. How to ski a blue. You and I are in that same moment together right now, see, because the truth is you and I find ourselves facing some stuff that we just said, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I, I have no desire. Tell me where smoother water is. Tell me the easy way down the hill. And guys, if we do that, if, if all we do is watch CNN and Fox News and try to figure out how to move our retirement accounts around so that we can... The next time crisis comes, this isn't the worst crisis you and I are going to face. And I'm not saying that to be doomed. I'm just saying this isn't the worst. And the next time crisis comes, you and I will be filled with the same panic, and you and I will be consumed with the same fear. We'll all be like ostriches sticking our heads in the ground and hoping the danger goes away. Or you and I can take the moment to learn to ski blues. 
There's more at stake in the room right now. There's a bigger conversation to be had right now than where do I put my investments? And here's what we're going to discover we're in the next five weeks. That the question, the question whenever you and I face hard times is not, where's the easy way down the hill? You ready? The question, the better question that every one of us should ask is simply this. What would someone do who's in exactly the same circumstances that I'm in? What, what would someone do if they were in the marriage that I'm in? And, and there was the same struggle and the same fights going on and the same level of exasperation and frustration. What would someone do in a marriage like my marriage if they were absolutely confident that God was in control? What would that person do? What would someone do if they had just visited the doctor and the doctor had looked and said the word that none of us ever wants to hear, cancer? No, I know what my heart wants to do. I know, I, I know what my... Ra but what would someone do who just heard the words cancer do? If they absolutely believed that God was in control. What would someone do whose 401k was upside down? Whose mortgage miles from just breaking even. What would that person do? The person who's in exactly the same circumstances, dealing with exactly the same issues that I'm dealing with, what would that person do if they absolutely believed that God hadn't abandoned them? And better than that, that God was with them. What would that person do in hard times? And as you and I begin to navigate that question over the next five weeks together, you're going to find that it will absolutely change the trajectory of our lives, and you and I are suddenly going to be responding to hard times in ways that people who don't know our God are going to be baffled and confused and amazed. We're going to spend the next five weeks in a story that I'm sure many of us in the room know. It's the story of a guy by the name of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll jump over there, it's in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, probably the easiest look you're going to have in this church. Genesis, first book of the Bible. While you're going there, Genesis chapter 37, let me tell you why we're using this story. Let me tell you where, how we got there. This is an amazing, 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 amazing story of a guy who starts out at 17 years of age navigating stuff that you and I will probably never see in our entire lives. What he goes through, the darkness that he has to face, the disappointment that devastates his life is tidal waves in comparison to what you and I will in all likelihood deal with. And yet in that moment, Joseph responds remarkably. Doesn't stop there. Joseph ends up at the other end of the spectrum. Joseph ends up with more power, more influence, more money than any of us is ever going to see. He, he, he ends up the number two guy in the, 
the world-dominating country, and the number one guy simply says to everybody else, do whatever he says to do. More power, more influence, more money than you and I are ever going to see. And what you're going to discover is, is that in that moment, Joseph simply does what anybody else would do if they had more money, more power, more influence than anybody else in the world, if they believed that God was with them. Joseph's going to end up with a moment where he has the opportunity to get even, to pay back everybody who ever wronged him, who ever hurt him, and no one's going to ask any questions. He's never going to be held accountable for his vengeance. He can reach out his hand and do anything he desires to them. And in that moment, Joseph is simply going to do what anybody would do if they had the opportunity to get even with those who'd hurt him, if they believed that God was in control. It is an unbelievably remarkable life. Genesis chapter 37, just for some of us who don't know, this is not the Joseph of Mary and Joseph. This is a Joseph who lived way, 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 way before him. Matter of fact, you're at almost the beginning. You got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Jacob's son, Joseph. There is no Bible at this time. He doesn't have any of the verses that you and I have that say God loves you and God's with you and will not forsake you. This guy is doing it all on faith. So here we go. Now here's, here's the one thing I want to say to you. As we go through this story, see you and I, you, you and I already know how this ends. You and I are going to, you and I are going to have a tendency to belittle the moment because we're going to go, it's okay because everything turns out okay for Joseph. Don't you dare, don't you dare, don't you dare do that. You realize this journey that we're about to, takes 13 years and as it begins to unfold in the life, of you ready, of a 17-year-old young man, he has no idea how this story lands. So his darkness is dark. His fear is real. So do the journey with him, and don't, don't get to the end yet. Live the moment in his sandals. Here we go. Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 2, says, This is the account of Jacob. Remember, Jacob is Joseph's dad. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. So his father's got multiple wives. And he brought their father, Joseph did, a bad report about his brothers. A little bit of a tattletale. Now, Israel, don't you love tattletales? A little bit of tattletale. All right, so Israel loved Joseph. Israel's another name for Jacob, so don't get confused. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So he's got favorites because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and would not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Now, get the moment. So here's Joseph growing up in an absolutely dysfunctional family. 
Dad's got a bunch of wives running around. There's a bunch of brothers and half-sisters and stepbrothers and all of this. And in the midst of all of that, Jacob decides to play favorites with one of his children, and he decides to openly and publicly love Joseph more than the rest of the kids. And, and, and just to rub it in their faces a little, Jacob gives a highly decorated, brightly colored robe to Joseph so that every time Joseph walks in the room, guess what all the rest of the brothers and sisters know? There's the spoiled little bratty kid. And it says, it says it gets so bad, so bad in that home that his brothers can't open their mouths and say anything that's not hateful. To make it worse, God gives Joseph a dream. And in this dream, God reveals to Joseph that one day, one day, all of his brothers and, are you ready for this? His mother and his father will bow down to him. Now, you got to get this. In Eastern culture, this is just absolute because everything is done by age. It's all ranked out that way. And the idea that an older brother would ever, ever show that type of honor, never. Ne but worse, mom and dad are going to bow down to you, Joseph. And Joseph has... Either the lack of discretion, or who knows, maybe Joseph's struggling with a little bit of pride, but he shares the dream because his brothers already like him so much. <laughs> Skip forward a few verses, and Joseph's been at home. His brothers have been in the field working, taking care of the sheep. I'm sure that made them very happy. And dad calls Joseph in and says, Joseph, go find your brothers. I want you to give me another report. So Joseph goes out looking for his brothers. The story talks about how he finds them. But it's an interesting comment in the story. It says, and while Joseph was a long way off, his brothers saw him. I wonder how they saw him. His stinking brightly colored coat. <laughs> Chapter 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers... They stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern. Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So, it's, it's, a, it's a basically, it's a dried up well. And as they sat down to eat their meal, okay, so get, get the moment. You just beat the snot out of our brother. We've thrown him down into a dry well. Let's have lunch. And Joseph's down there going, hello. And his brother's all at the top going, hey, pass the mayo. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So you get the moment. Suddenly, they're going to show mercy. Let's, let's not kill our brother. Let's sell him. Prayerfully, none of your children have that idea about their siblings. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took them to Egypt. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. Answer me this. If God loves Joseph, would God let something like this happen to someone he loves? I mean, think about it a minute. I mean, here's, would God let something like this, grows up in a dysfunctional family, beat up by his brothers, thrown in a well, they consider killing him. Instead, in mercy, they pull him out and sell him into slavery to a foreign land. Imagine, imagine if you've been caught and thrown into the slave trade, and now you're in Afghanistan as a slave. Would God allow anything, would God allow this to happen to someone he loves? I mean, I mean, what has Joseph done so far that's so bad? I mean, I, I, I get it. He's probably a little bit prideful. I, I get it. He, he's been a little bit of a tattletale on his brothers. But what has he done that's so bad that God would allow this? I mean, I mean, if you stop and think about it, there's a whole bunch of people culpable in this story. I mean, Dad's already established a very dysfunctional phone. He, he's the one. He's the one that publicly loved one of his sons more. They wouldn't be this mad if it hadn't been for Dad. And then what about the brothers? I mean, does anything justify this? I mean, sure, he's been a brat, but you don't throw your bratty brother in a well and sell him. And I mean, maybe even God gets some blame because didn't God give Joseph the dream that got everybody? And if God knew Joseph couldn't handle the dream, why did God give Joseph the dream? What has Joseph done that's so bad? And, and, and if God loved Joseph, why is this happening? See, this is a big question for you and me because you and I have asked this same question, haven't we? If God loves me, then why did God let my friend betray me? If God really, really loves me, then, then, then why is my marriage so bad? If, if God really cares for me, how come I got the pink slip? You, you and I have asked this question a hundred times. Isn't it interesting that we measure the love of God by our bank accounts and by what car we drive? And, and, if, and if I drive a big enough car and my house is big enough, then God must love me. And when things are going bad and my job isn't turning out and my marriage, then God doesn't love me. Really? Then, then what does that say about everybody living in Africa? God loves Americans more than Africans. What does that say about every handicapped child born in this world? God loved you because he made you whole and he made them handicapped. Is the love of God really honestly measured by your and my prosperity and comfort?
about 13 months ago, my friend Russ went into the doctor. He knew something wasn't right. He knew, he knew something in his body was out of sorts. And so he went into the doctor and he, he just said, hey, could you run some tests? Because I don't know what it is, but I know something's wrong. And sure enough, the doctors came back and they said, Russ, you've got advanced liver cancer. It's, it's highly aggressive. And the truth is, you know, if we'd caught this really early, then maybe we could have done something. But it's way too late. And uh, you just need to go home and say whatever you need to say to your family and get ready. If God loves Russ, does, does he let cancer get too far before you find it? Doesn't he intervene? Doesn't he step in and say, no, 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 I won't let someone I love go through hard times or suffer like that? Or... Isn't it interesting that we measure the love of God by our comfort? Back to the story. We're going to skip chapter 38. You... If you do chapter 38, it would, uh, well, it's interesting. It's, uh, you'll never hear a preacher preach on chapter 38, but uh, when you're home, you might want to read that sometime. It's, uh, it's the part of the, it's, it's, yeah. Anyways, don't read it now. Uh, you'll, you'll have more questions than answers. But uh, chapter 39, read it at home. Email, email Pastor Jeff. Uh, <laughs> And what God's going to say next about the life of Joseph is going to be absolutely mind-boggling. You ready for this? It's chapter 39, verse 1. Here we go because the story's picking up again. Here's what it says. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. So they, they've completed the trip. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. I mean, guys, think about how far this guy's life has fallen. This guy probably the, lived in a family that was wealthy enough to have slaves. Now, within the course of a couple hours, he are one. The, the question on his heart is, is, I wonder who my new master is going to be. I wonder how much I will fetch on the auction block. And then you ready for this? Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Are you kidding me? The, the, have you been reading the story? I mean, the guy just got beat up by his brothers, just got thrown into an empty well, just in mercy didn't get killed, instead got sold into slavery, into a foreign land where he doesn't know the language, and God is with him? And what does it look like to be alone? You and I have asked that, haven't we? If this is God with me, then what does it look like to be alone? I mean, I mean, wait, wait, wait. If God was with him, shouldn't he be back home with mom and dad hanging out at the tent? And shouldn't the brothers be the ones in Egypt building pyramids without change for the Coke machine? If, if, if God is with Joseph, couldn't God have intervened? Couldn't God have stepped in and, 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 and kept Joseph from even finding his brothers that day? Or couldn't he have, you know, made it so that when they negotiated with the, tra the Ishmaelite traders, they said, no, the price is too high, and 
you know, the brothers changed their mind and they all went, ha, 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 it was just a joke and we'll all go home. I mean, if God is with him, this is good for us to hear. Because you and I have faced moments. Some of us are in moments right now. And our answer is, if this is what it means for God to be with me, and guys, 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 if you and I aren't careful, we'll run to the end of the story, we'll realize, great, we'll realize that in every one of these moments, God was in absolute control. God knew exactly what he was doing. God is orchestrating the moments. He's sending Joseph to Egypt so he can become the second most powerful guy in the world, and he would have never done that from his parents' farm. But don't you dare let your hearts go there, because as Joseph, as a 17-year-old young man, stands on that auction block, it feels totally different. He has no idea where this ends up. And he, just like us, is struggling at the moment to say, whoa, 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 God, if this is what it feels like for you to be with me, then could you go be with someone else? Some of us sit in homes in the midst of marriages right now, and, and we just want to say, God, if, if my marriage is any reflection of you being with me, if, if my 401k is any reflection of you being with me, if, if my child being born handicapped is any, any reflection of you being with me, could you go be with someone else for a while? So we've thought that, haven't we? We've wrestled that haven't we? What does Joseph do next? <laughs> because what Joseph does next is the stunning part of the story. It is absolutely different than what you and I are prone to and what you and I are moved to and what our gut says to do when the bottom falls out and God seems to be absent. Back to the passage, verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. He prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Wait, you, you made him a prosperous slave. Woo! And when his master saw that the Lord was with him... And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of, this household, of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and, and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, and both in the house and in the field. You get the moment. You get the moment. 
Joseph doesn't shake his fist at God. Joseph doesn't say, God, how in the world did you get me? I mean, none, I mean, hey, I didn't, this isn't fair, and it's not right, and how dare. Joseph doesn't, ready, doesn't stick his hand and try to fix it for God. God, you, you apparently have lost control. Your hands are off the steering wheel. Let me fix this. I'll, I'll run away from my slave master, and I'll head back home, and I'll patch it up with my brother. Joseph doesn't throw in his faith. He doesn't grab and go, look, if, if this is what following God looks like, then shoo, take it. All the things that you and I would be inclined to do in a moment like this. And instead, here's what he simply does. Joseph, you ready for this? Joseph does what any 17-year-old would do. Who'd grown up in a dysfunctional family who'd been hated and despised by his brothers, who'd been beat up and thrown into a well, who'd been sold into slavery into a foreign land and now found himself absolutely out of touch with all of his family. His parents believe in he did. Joseph does what any 17-year-old would do in that circumstance. Who believed that God was still with him. He lived that moment with honor. He said, I will be the best darn slave to the glory of God because this is where God has placed me. Which brings you and me to the moment. What, what is the question? What is, what is the question that you and I are compelled to ask when you and I face the hardest of times? What would anybody do who was me? who had the same circumstances, the same hurdles to go through, the same desperate moment? What would anybody do who was me, who was absolutely confident that God was with them? What, what would someone do who, who was now 32 years old and had never been married, and finally there was somebody interested, and they knew deep down in their heart that wasn't the type of person God would ever put them with. They don't even know their God yet, it, it, but they're interested. And the ring is only a moment away. What, what would anybody do in that circumstance? who thought potentially they faced a life of singleness if they were confident that God was with them? What would someone like you, in the same circumstances that you're in, in the same marriage that you're in, and when that moment comes and you go, look, I have tried everything, and we are fighting like cats and dogs, and I'm just exhausted. I am worn out. There's not one ounce of energy left. And truth be told, I don't even love my spouse right now. What would somebody do in a marriage like that, exactly like yours, if they believed that God was in control? What would somebody do in economic times like this when our 401ks are upside down and our houses and our mortgages are in the tank and the offering plate got passed if they believed that God was still in control? 
What would somebody do when a friend betrays? When, when you get stabbed in the back, what would someone in your circumstance do if they absolutely believed that God was still with them? And when the doctor report comes, and the doctor says it's time to get ready, if they believed that God was with them. My friend Russ found a doctor who would do the surgery. All the other doctors said don't do it, but this doctor said he would. And They did the surgery on Russ, and lo and behold, they cut out a huge portion of his kidney. They started the radiation. They started the chemo. Everything was clearing up. Matter of fact, the doctor came back to him and said, you know, we did. We, we did the Hail Mary. We, we took the shot. It looks like it's paying off. Matter of fact, Russ, if you, if you can make it through the next three chemo treatment, we're going we're gonna to declare you cancer-free. And sure enough, Russ makes it through, gets to the doctor's appointment, and the doctor looks at him and says, Russ, you're, you're just an incredible story. You're, you're unbelievable because this, the, the chances of this working are just almost nil. To which Russ says, well, I'm thankful and I'm, I'm glad, but I've got this horrible pain in my back. Could you take a look at that? And the doctors looked a little broader. They looked a little farther, only to discover that Russ's body was absolutely riddled with cancer. And they looked back at Russ, and they said, two weeks to two months. What do you do in a moment like that when the doctor says, if you believe that God's in control? I went to my friend Russ and I said, Russ, I, I hate that answer. With all of my, I hate that answer. And here's what Russ said back to me. My faith in God is greater than my frustration with God. Let me say that again. My faith in God is greater than my frustration with God. What do you do when the doctor says you got cancer and you got two months to live? You do exactly what anybody would do who was given two months to live if you believe God's in control. which leaves you and me with the question. What would anybody do facing what you're facing right now, facing what you will face? What would they do? How would they behave if they truly, truly believed that God was with them? And just do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we... We simply come to you in this moment and we acknowledge we so often measure your faithfulness and we measure your goodness by our bank account and by the size of the home we live in or whether or not we got that last promotion at work. And, and we get so convinced in our lives that if, if, if life doesn't land where we were expecting and, and if we don't get the answers we were anticipating, that somehow you've left us and abandoned us to our own. 
God, the hard times are where we figure out what we really believe, how deeply we really trust. And so God, as many of us in this room are in hard times right now, we simply choose to live this moment with the confidence that God is with us. This is our prayer. Give us the courage. In Jesus' name, amen.